We have been tracing the journey of the people of Israel as narrated in the book of Numbers. We have titled this series In Between because they were people who had been rescued from Egypt but they were on their journey to the promised land. They were not yet there. And so the book of Numbers records all the activities and the events that happened on this uh, journey, along this journey, while they were in transition. And so it's, uh, we have always shared that this is a very, very beautiful book. There are many great lessons to learn from this, uh, from, from this beautiful book that can encourage us in our journey of faith. You know, and if we are willing to roll up our sleeves and be able to indulge in this great and beautiful mind where we'll be able to, to mine spiritual treasures that will be able to help us in our journey. And so last week, we camped in Numbers chapter 20, and we are looking into the story of Moses, why Moses actually missed the promised land together with his brother Aaron. Today, we'll be in a very interesting story in Numbers chapter 22. So you made dash there. So we are going to read Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24. In the book of Acts, there is a story of, that is told. I'm saying this so that you can get into Numbers chapter 22. Um, Paul had preached a very long sermon, very long. And a young guy called Eutychus, you know, slept. You know, he, he snoozed, you know, and he went down. And then he fell from that floor all the way to the ground floor, and he died. Paul prayed for him, and he came back to life. I want to warn you, I don't have the powers of Paul. <laughs> Just in case you are tempted, you know. So please stay put, you know, stay alert. Stay alert, I may not have power, those powers at the moment. God hasn't given me those powers yet, because even I haven't fulfilled what I promised to my wife, some years back when we got married. I promised her many things that I'm, I'm still unable to fulfill. So that's what we are looking at. But So please put your finger in chapter 20 and 21. Just to make a few remarks there. Because some of you did ask me a few questions about why Aaron was actually punished. You know, so I got a few requests. Why was, you didn't explain why Aaron was banished from this promised land. But in chapter 20, we saw that when God pronounced this painful punishment, that the, these brothers are not going to see the promised land, then from, in chapter 20, from verse 22, the narrative narrates how Aaron dies. You know, the, and God says there, the reason why, both of you, that is chapter 20, from verse 24, both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. So we are not given a lot of details how Aaron rebelled. Maybe it's because he didn't ask his brother to stop whatever he was doing. And so he was punished nevertheless. And the rebellion is a conscious decision to defect from the will and the way of the Lord. So that is how they rebelled together, and God punished them. So from there, we see how Aaron dies. You get uh, verse 25 says in chapter 20, call Aaron and his son Eliezer and take them up Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments 
Actually, NIV maybe doesn't give us a better feel of it. Some versions will say, strip Aaron's garments. So, this, I mean, this means that Aaron was stripped, meaning that he wasn't asked for permission. That he was, actually it was a sign of a demotion, so to speak. And he, you know, this word again means, you know, to strip, you know, or even to invade without permission. And I was trying to think about that, even how our Lord Jesus Christ, again on the mountain of his death, that he was equally stripped of his garments. He, was the, he is the high priest. That's what Hebrews chapter 7 calls him. But he wasn't stripped of his priesthood because he resurrected again. And Hebrews chapter 7 goes into greater length and details telling us that because of that, then his priesthood continues forever, interceding for us. So his priesthood is better than that of Aaron and the ones who came after him, his sons and the others who came after him, that his priesthood is perfect, it is forever, always interceding for his people. And because he came again from the dead and he rose to become a high priest forever, interceding for us on the mercy seat of God, so this stripping of Aaron was also point, pointing us to a bigger reality to come to a perfect high priest and king who is to come. But the thing that I loved about this story is that God did not permit the people of Israel actually to see Aaron being stripped of his garments. In any case, he died a very honorable death, so to speak, and was mourned for 30 days. That's what the, uh, the last verses there say, that he was mourned for 30 days. No more official mourning in this culture was seven days. So he was held in high honor in high esteem. So immediately after this, we go to chapter 21, where the people of Israel they recorded their first remarkable win against the people of Canaan. You know, when the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave, and gave the Canaanites over to them. So they wanted to start this journey to occupy the promised land with God, and God is honored, and God gives them the defeat. <coughs> Sorry, I have, uh, Charity has said that she has a flu. I think she's the one who has been spreading it all over in the staff team. <laughs> As such moments come, do not worry, we'll manage it. You know, so, after this, they, they win their first battle. Indeed, God had strengthened these people. And actually, they win this battle at a place that is called Homer. If you read chapter 21, uh, right there, no pun intended. <laughs> Those are not my words, verse 3, brothers and sisters. They completely destroyed them and their towns. So the place was named what? Homer, right? You sit there. If you may remember in Numbers chapter 14, when they rebelled against the Lord, and Moses told them, do not go to the Amalekites, do not go to these people, because you'll be defeated. And they went up to that mountain, and they were beaten thoroughly. That place was actually called Homer, where they had their first uh, defeat 
Actually, that's the very same place, but now with God, that they have their first win. They have their first recorded win. Thank you, Brian. So, but immediately after that, in chapter 21, I'm just reading some portions here, because so that, again, because of time. They, verse 4 says, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. I mean, even for you guys here, you be, I mean, I mean, I mean you're thinking, these people, who are they? You know, why can't they be like the people of Mamlaka Hill, Chapel Ruaka, who do not complain, who always rejoices in the victories that the Lord has given them? But we have a very short memory. And immediately after that, even after that win, they start again complaining and grumbling. So their character of grumbling has not changed yet, brothers and sisters. And maybe here I was trying to think, what is the point, what is the thing that we can learn from here? In what ways has the Lord given you, brothers and sisters, any victory? How has the Lord, or in what ways have you witnessed the victories of God? And has that changed your heart? Or even out of those victories, you still continue complaining and grumbling. Perhaps that is one of the things that we can learn from this. Sometimes we, after God has given us victories, we run away from him. Take a case in point, one prays to find a spouse. A marriage is celebrated and God honors that person and God delivers that, you know, brings someone to do life with. But then after that, instead of celebrating the victories of God, then you start hearing the dramas in marriage. Or even you start hearing that someone is walking away from their vow and their commitment towards faithfulness and is disobeying God by walking out of that vow of true uh, trust and faithfulness, even in a marriage. In what ways has God answered your prayers, but again, immediately after that, you have disobeyed him, and perhaps even you have become even worse than you were before the Lord answered that prayer? In this case, there is no verbal reaction from Moses or even from God. But, you know, maybe Moses has learned his lesson. You know, he just keeps quiet. Even God doesn't say a word. But again, God disciplines these people out of this complaining and grumbling by sending to them um, a plague of fiery serpents that killed many, many of them. But unlike before, they modeled a speedy repentance and humility in their language. And we see that in verse 7. They said this, We sinned, the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So they acknowledge, and that's the true repentance. We have sinned against you, and we have sinned against God. Pray for our healing. So they repented. So Moses prayed for the people. And God answers that, you know, the Lord said to Moses, make a serpent and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. And this is very intriguing, especially because of the simplicity of the solution that God gives to these people. Those that were mortally beaten by the snake 
were granted instant restoration and health just by looking up and believing. And then they were healed totally. But again, this again was pointing to a bigger reality. And this one, Jesus takes this story in the book of John chapter 3. Let me read it for you quickly in the book of John chapter 3 so that you may understand. I'm saying this so that you may understand this story better. In John chapter 3, just before the famous verse there, verse 14 says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So they looked at this bronze snake, and they had their, their life was restored. But only for a moment, because later they died. But for us as believers, we know that if we look up to our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was hoisted and raised, then we have the promise of eternal life. It is in this context that Christ says these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So even as we speak and as we narrate that verse that maybe many of us know, maybe 95% of us may know this verse, John 3, 16, what it says, it come, actually comes from here. The context is here. And we see that from here, for us to recover from the, the bite of sin and death, we must look up to Christ, who was hoisted on a piece of wood, and actually believe in him. And many people don't believe in him because of the simplicity of the solution. We read that many people died, and the option was there for you. If you want to die, die. If you want to live, look up to the snake, and you will be able to live. Quickly from there, we see the Janit now begins to Moab, and we see that these people of Israel are growing from strength to strength, overcoming the enemies that come along their way. They defeated the Amorites, when you just flip over to you know, in, the, in chapter 21, the Bible says that the, the, you know, the defeat of Sihon and Og, or OG, the real OG, <laughs> right? These people of Israel are growing from strength to strength. Having looked up to the bronze snake, you know, they grew from strength, and there's nothing that was stopping them. And so they proceed. And we see this, you know, them defeating the, the Amorites, represented by the king of Sihon in verse 33 of chapter 21. Verse 33 to 34 says this, you know, that uh, um, after Moses, let me read from verse 32. After Moses had sent spies to Jazer, the Israelites captured its surrounding settlements and drove out the Amorites who are there. These are the guys who had initially defeated them, but now they are overcoming them and they are defeating them. In verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, do not be afraid of him, for I have handed him over to you with his whole army in his land. This is now the king of the, you know, or Og or Og. Uh, do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So they struck him down together with his sons and his whole army, leaving them no survivors, and they took possession of his land. 
So the people of Israel, we see that they are growing from strength to strength, and God has really uh, strengthened them. Let me, just before we leave... We are not going to be defeated here in Homer. We are going to move from strength to strength. Thank you. So, the thing that we learned from these two defeats here that are recorded here is that on our march to heaven, we will meet many challenges and temptations along our way. But let us not forget the power that we have in Christ. Let us not forget the redemption that we have and the promise that we have in Christ. That he who has overcome and he who has defeated death and sin, you know, his spirit lives in us. And so we are able to overcome any challenge that may come along our way. For these people of Israel, they were even defeating kingdoms that had been fortified, that is Sihon and Og, bringing dynasties of the Canaanites down. So now we go to chapter 22, where we are camping. That was just a preamble, sorry, it has taken quite some time. But I thought that I share that so that even when you're doing your private and personal studies, that you may be able to understand the whole context. In chapter 22, something very interesting happens. All through from chapter 21, I mean from chapter 1 to chapter 20, uh, from, from chapter 1 to chapter 21, we are reading this story from the perspective of the people of Israel. The narration of this story is coming from where the Israelites are camped, where the people of Israel are. But now in chapter 22, 23, and 24, it is like we are given a break, and now the story is narrated to us not from the perspective of the people of Israel, but from the enemy's camp, from the people who are fighting for them. And I want you to remember this, even as we go through this story. I want you to remember that the people of Israel are not aware of all these events that are happening in chapter 22, 23, and 24. For them, they continue with their life. They, you know, they, are, they are doing just their normal life. But behind the scene, God is doing something incredible. And that's what I want us to read, brothers and sisters. So please be alert you know, as we proceed and as we look into this story. As the Bible takes us outside the camp of the people of Israel to the, camp of, to, the camp, to the camp of the enemies. Verse 1 says, Then the, the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the people of Israel. I mean, the people of God are coming closer and closer to the promised land, but not on their own strength. God is giving them these victories along the way. And God is giving them because they are obeying God's word. They were not perfect. They were not always faithful. But even in moments of obedience, God is moving them from strength to strength. From this, we see that these people of Israel, they are are becoming a force to reckon with. And from verse 2 to 3, the one that we have just read, the people of Moab were terrified, led by their king. And the moment that the king is terrified, you know, all the people will be terrified. But the people of Moab didn't know something. God had already told Moses, and we read this in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, that God actually had told Moses, do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you 
any part of their land. I have given her to the descendants of Lot as a possession. So the king of Moab doesn't know that actually God had also shielded them. As much as they are enemies of God's people, they are still God's people. And God had told Moses, do not touch them. You know, that's not your land. But the king of Moab, that is Balak, is full of fear. I want you to see the big picture here in this verse. To see that God has, had strengthened his people to the extent that they had spread fear or dispelled fear even to the surrounding kingdoms. These are people who are slaves about 40 years before that. But now they are such a big army that even the fortified kingdoms and the kings are afraid now of these people. So this is what happens from verse 4 to verse 6. The Moabites say to the elders of Midian, so they form an alliance, Moab, uh, Moab and Midian, this horde is, is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Simon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor near the river in his native land. And Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those that you curse are equally cursed. The Moabites communicate their concerns to the elders of Midian. And together they hatch a plan to get a very well-known false prophet, a diviner called Balaam, who lived about 600 miles. That's what we see, you know, the, you know that, that he lived on that side of the river. That is the Euphrates, so far away, 600 kilometers. I think it's from here to all the way perhaps to Malindi, you know, to get someone who will come and be able to cast the people of God. Friends, I want you to learn that. Do not underestimate the power of evil. To go to any strength or length or extent to thwart the plan of God for his people. So these guys say, you know, make this trip and get this diviner or this false prophet to come and cast the people of God. And Balak, who is the king, knows that if he can't defeat the people of Israel physically, with his, army, with his army, then he, using Balaam, he can weaken them spiritually. And in the walk of faith, friends, Satan will always cripple you spiritually before he defeats you physically. And Balaam is a guy who had run a very successful venture, you know, of cursing, because Balak says there at the end, for I know that those that you bless are blessed. And those that you curse are cursed. So verse 7, let's follow our story. Verse 7, the elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. So these guys leave, you know, leave this place, Moab and Midian, and they go all the way to this place where Balak was. And they carry with them a curse fee, a divination fee, 
And I want to encourage you, friends, aren't you glad that when we are in need, we do not need to bribe our God, that he can come to our rescue when we call upon him, that we do not need to go and look for any other support from anywhere, that he's always near and close to his children. Psalm 121 is the one that says that I look up to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That he who watches over you, he watches over Israel, he watches over you, brothers and sisters. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. That's what the word of God says. That all we need is to draw near to him as a people who are loved and strengthened and not terrified or scared by multitude of threats around us. That we can run to him and we know that indeed he will give us a solution. Verse 8 to verse 11. So these guys arrive and Balak says, spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princess stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. So it is, this is the conversation that God has with this false prophet. And it is difficult to know what the name Yahweh here translated as Lord, you know, really meant to this pagan prophet. But it seems to me that Balaam knew a plethora that's the word that Pastor David King loves using. A plethora of gods. And he knew that maybe this God Yahweh, you know, he will be effective. This is an effective name to the people of Israel. It doesn't mean that he really believed in this God. But he knew many other gods around. Whatever the case, the text here shows that God can reveal himself to anyone. That he has legitimate rights and claims even to those who are outside his covenantal relationships. And in verse 12, again, let's proceed in a dramatic way. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. So God appears to this guy, this false prophet Balaam, and he tells them two things. Not to go with the princes of Moab and not to put a curse on Israel because they are blessed. And God affirms that he, indeed these people are blessed by him. And do you know who these people are? They are the complainers. They are the grumblers. But God says they are blessed. God blesses us despite us, despite our weaknesses. They are blessed and not cursed. That's how God sees them. That's what God says that they are. In verse 13, the next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak, to Balak's princess, go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. And our keen Bible reader, we realize that statement has an issue. He is a very shrewd false prophet. He doesn't give the full message of God. God had said, do not go with these people and do not curse the people of Israel, for they are blessed. What did he do? He only gave half the message, you know. So I think the guy was trapped between the monetary benefit of the cash fee 
that Balak had sent and obeying the commands of God. The guy was torn. And actually, the book of Jude, let me just read it for you in the book of Jude, the second last book, chapter 1, verse 11 says, Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. You get so the guy was running, the guy was greedy. That's what other versions will say there. That he, he was greedy. That's why he didn't give the full message of God. Verse 15 to 17. Then Balak sent other princes, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. That, that is what, again, Balak, uh, Balak says. And Balak is trying to think that maybe the reason why Balaam didn't come is because he wanted to negotiate a higher price. So do you know what I'm going to do? So Balak, the king, sweetens the deal. First sending more distinguished delegation, but also with an open check. Say whatever you need. Again, do you see the extent that the devil can go? Not sparing any resources to thwart the promises of God. And he's very patient. These guys are making a round trip. This trip would go for about 30 days. So these guys, this round trip is about 90 days, three months journey. But the devil is patient. So for you who says that I'm hot-tempered like the devil, he's not. Very calculative, very patient. Even when he tempted Jesus Christ, the Bible says that he left them up to a very opportune time. Very patient and calculative. Verse 18 to 19. But Balaam answered them, even if Balak gave me his palace, Filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now stay here tonight, as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. I love it there when he says that I could, do, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of God. And this is a reminder to us that God is showing us that he is in control of the story. That he is in control of the big things and the small things. The devil is not in the details. God is the one who is in the details. But as much as Balaam knew God's will, he also wants to entertain this sin. He tells these guys, you know, if we sleep here, maybe something has changed. The question that people ask, especially in things to do with sexuality, how far is it Far, you good. I want to remain holy, but I want also to enjoy, to see if I can enjoy other illegitimate pleasures, so to speak. Because there was no need to ask God again. He knew God's will. He knew who God was. God had given him this directive. And so if he was obedient to God, then he needed not to go and again consult the Lord. Deep down his heart, he wanted to know if God can be manipulated by a tactical delay to change his mind. And so God knows his mind. And verse 20 says, that night God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. 
the guy, you know, he thinks that he has locked God. Do you know what happens? The next day, early in the morning, verse 21, Balaam got up in the morning, you get, to dash to the other side. He's excited to go. He wakes up in the morning, saddles his donkey, and leaves for Moab. I learned this from verse 22. God is the one who has said go, but verse 22 says, but God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. You may wonder why was God angry with him. God is the one who has said go. On the surface, Balaam seems to obey God, but deep down his heart, as you have seen from this correspondence in the book of Jude, and also Peter mentions that, he was going for, for the money. His heart was misplaced. On the lips, he, prom, uh, he, 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 you know, he professed obedience, but his heart coveted money. And what was happening from the outside didn't match actually what was happening in the inside. And this one, we find, I find this in verse 32 down there. If you jump there in the same uh, chapter, verse 20, 32, the angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. So God knows that these guys is just offering lip service towards God. So after that, you know, because Balaam here is, is sort of a double dealer, you know, and I don't know if you guys have ever, I don't know if you are in your dating life when you were younger, that you ever met a double dealer, you know, you, you, know, you, 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 you met the boyfriend or the girlfriend of your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you get, and you wondered, who am I here? God hates double dealers, spiritually, that these guys is committed to obey the Lord, but actually his heart is not there. From verse 23 to verse 27, we get into a very dramatic story. The angel of the Lord, you know, is hindering the donkey. Let me read it for you so that you may see. But God was very angry, verse 22, was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Verse 23, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Verse 24, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against, against it. So he beat her again. So that's the second time. Verse 26. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And he was, very, he was angry and beat her with his staff. Verse 28. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? You even feel weird for the donkey, right? <laughs> the donkey sees the, angels, the angel of the Lord three times, but the seer, Balaam, no pun intended, does not see the angel of the Lord. Balaam doesn't know even that he's talking to the animal because they have a conversation actually with the donkey. It even doesn't hit him. Actually, the donkey is speaking. And they have this story. In verse 31 we see, then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword. So he bowed low and fell face down. 
The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is reckless one before me. The donkey saw, the donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away, I would have certainly killed you by now, but I would have spared her. I would have spared the donkey. So the, this donkey speaks. And Dr. is here, donkeys, I think they don't, they don't do that. <laughs> Although some wives think the opposite. They see speak, they are called husbands at times. They are animals. What you are doing is animal husbandry. <laughs> so this guy, this donkey, is speaking now. A very interesting story there. But, verse 34, Balaam says to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but only speak what I tell you. So Balaam went with the princess of Balak. And so this is what happens. So now Balak, Balaam is now willing to obey the word of the Lord fully. The angel of the Lord has stood to oppose him. Verse 36, when Balak heard, now this is the key, that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Anon border at the edge of his territory. So again, Balak puts down all the protocol, he's a king, but he, now he leaves his palace to go and meet with this guy, he swings into action, and actually he takes, the narrative narrates to us that he takes this guy to different places, doing the same pagan sacrificial ritual, hoping that the, the change of venue will change the heart and the will of God. So Balaam is taken to these different places, but instead of Balaam pronouncing a curse to the people of Israel, he pronounced blessings to the people of Israel. Verse 23, I mean chapter 23, quickly. Balaam said, build me, this is now after they, he had met with the king, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam said, and the two of them offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I go aside. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet with me. Whatever he reveals to me, I will tell you. Then he went off to, to a barren height. God met with him, and Balaam said, I have prepared seven altars, and on each altar I have offered a bull and a ram. The Lord put a message in Balaam's mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went back to him and found him standing beside his offering with the princess of Moab. Then Balaam uttered his oracle. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, cast Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. So we see the first blessing there. Balaam says, how can I cast, in verse 8, how can I cast those whom God has not cast? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks, I see them. From the heights, I view them. I see people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my end be like theirs. So we see here from this oracle, the first oracle, 
that God has secured the blessings of his people. That there is security. And God is the one who is securing these blessings. You know, he says, how can I cast those who God has not cast? That the blessings of God are, you know, are placed and they are safe with God. And God is the one who is saying that, you know what, even if anyone tries, these people are not cast. They were not faithful people. They were not committed people. But God says that they cannot be cast. So I want you to see that the blessing, instead of the cast, the guy pronounces a blessing of security in regards to the promises of God. So verse 11 says, Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to cast my enemies, but you have done nothing but to bless them. Verse 12, he answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Now the guy has obeyed. So they change location, and he goes to the second place, and he pronounces the second oracle or the second blessing. And I want you to see that this blessing that he, uh, you know, Balaam pronounces here is a blessing that is backed by God himself. Chapter 23, from verse 18 to verse 24. So this is the utterance again of Balaam. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Are you, you know, this is one of the things that we love quoting in our prayers. God is not a man that he should lie. Actually, it came from a pagan prophet, you know, and God is using the mouthpiece of a false prophet to actually affirm who God really is. You know, so he says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change, change it. That the blessings of God towards the people of God, they are backed by God himself. It is not about the, you know, the monies that we have in the bank, it is not about saving our currencies in gold. It is not saving the blessings of God in bitcoins, which does not fluctuate with the dollars and all that. The blessings of God himself, brothers and sisters, they are backed by God. God is the one who says, because I have promised, I am not a man that I should lie. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And so this is a confidence that brothers and sisters you should have. So again, let's dash down there. Balaam's that oracle, verse 27. Then Balak said to Balaam, this is the king, come, let me take you to another place. Do you see how he's changing the places? To see if, if I change the places, am I going to change the heart and the will of God, of the people of Israel? Perhaps it will please God to let you cast them for me from there. And Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the wasteland. Verse 29, Balaam said, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam had said. Imagine all the animals that were slaughtered to bless, <laughs> to cast the people of Israel everywhere. You know, these are the bulls of pedigree which are being sacrificed. And these are the seven altars, you know, killing animals and all that. Verse chapter 24. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, 
he did not resort to sorcery as at other times, but he, ta- he turned his face towards the desert. When Balaam, this is a false prophet, chapter, verse 2 of 24, when Balaam looked out and saw Israel and camped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him and he uttered his oracle. So again, he's at an elevated place. The people of Israel are down there. Do you remember when we started this series, the first sermon, where God dictates how these people are going to be arranged tribe by tribe? And what did we say that they were arranged in a what? Let's see the image. I think it should be up on the screen. The, the image there, that they were, they make the sign of what? A cross. So Balaam now finally stands at an elevated place and he looks down and he sees these people arranged in their tribal formations and he sees the sign of the cross when Balaam looked out and saw Israel and count tribe by tribe, the spirit of God came upon him and he uttered this oracle. And I want you to see that, that blessing there. He says these words, how beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters, water will flow from their buckets, their seed will have abundant water, their king will be greater than Agag, their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt, they have the strength of a wild ox, they devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces, with the arrows they pierce them, like a lion they crouch and lie down, like a lioness who dares, to, who dares to rouse them. May those who bless you be blessed, and those who curse you be cursed. That's the blessing. The blessing to thrive and to flourish. And not because of anything else. We are not going to thrive spiritually because of anything else. It's because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's when we align ourselves and we hide ourselves behind the cross of Jesus Christ. Actually, if you go with me down there, let me not read the whole passage because of time. Again, Balaam pronounces his fourth oracle. This is what he says. The fourth blessing there. The fourth blessing there. Then he uttered his oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, from verse 15. The oracle of one whose eyes see clearly. When he saw the cross of Jesus Christ, that's when his eyes were opened clearly. The oracle of one who hears the words of God who has acknowledged the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are open. Do you know what he said? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong, a ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. When he was at that elevated place, sees the cross of Jesus Christ, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Friends, the blessing of true Messiah, actually the, that pronouncement comes from this false prophet there. The messianic hope. Jesus calls himself in the book of Revelation chapter 22 from verse 16 that he is the bright and the morning star. This star that this guy here, the false prophet, sees. This prophecy was fulfilled on Christmas Day. Even as we gear up to celebrate Christmas, the coming of our Messiah. 
you know, a star rose out of Israel. You may remember the book of Matthew chapter 2. The wise men, Magi from the east, you know, do you know what they said? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. Chapter 24 of Numbers. A star will come out of Jacob. That this promise, this promise was fulfilled on Christmas Day when our Lord Jesus Christ came. Quickly, what do we learn from this story, from these pronouncements? Again, perhaps in your private study you can look at the other uh, oracles. There were seven of them. But let me tell you what we learned from this story. It's a long story with very, very incredible things that we can learn from it. The same God who was there during this time of numbers, he's still the same God. And I pray for you, brothers and sisters, as believers, you will walk out of this place with three assurances that we can be able to glean from this story. Number one, I want you to remember God's consistent care, even when you don't see it. Israel, they have no idea what is happening. They were not aware of the invisible that was happening. They didn't know that God was shielding them and protecting them. Just because God at times looks inactive in your eyes isn't a fact that actually he is a dormant. He's not. He's still at work. And this God is your constant help, brothers and sisters. And I pray that you'll be able to look into your life and see where this reality needs to sink in, where this reality needs to hit. When you look and survey your life, are there areas that you feel like God is dormant? Are there places that you feel like God is inactive? Are there areas that you feel like God has forgotten me? From this story we see that God is still working for the sake of his people. That's number one. I want you to see the second lesson. How God restrains the power of the wicked. Balaam isn't free to do what he wills and what he desires. He was hired to curse. But God forces him to bless. And you know in our African cultures, we fear curses, right? And some of you have been bound. Maybe I was cursed. Friends, no man has the ability to curse you. You get? Sometimes even we fear. Maybe I was cursed even by my parents. It is the only person who has the ability and the power to execute blessings or curses. That is with God. And God, he is a righteous judge. If anyone perhaps has pronounced a curse and it is not right, it has no merit, God, the one who, need, who is the executor of those threats, curses, and blessings, will not be able to curse you. Sometimes we do things and we say that, you know, I was blessed. Why I think if anyone has blessed and God is not pleased with you, you know, then there's nothing that's going to happen. So the thing is this, I want you to walk out of this place with freedom, that God is the one who has the ability to bless and to curse. And that resides with God, not with any man, as we have seen from this story. Find safety and comfort in that, that God doesn't sleep nor slumbers. He rules over everything in the universe, even as we sang earlier. He reigns and he is in control. The third one, that God keeps his promise. In this story, we learn that God is a promise keeper. The promise had been made to, uh, to Abraham years before, and it is protected and shielded by God. And God told Abraham that I bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. All the blessings that God will 
or has given you, brothers and sisters, are protected in God. And nothing can puncture or severe those blessings. No curse can break through the shield of blessing that God has put around his people. The very same thing even with our gift of salvation. That God has protected and sealed the gift and the blessing of salvation to us. It's Paul who says these words in the book of Romans chapter 8, 38, that I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither heights nor depths, or anything else in creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, the blessing of your salvation is secure, it's safe, and God has kept his promise. Brothers and sisters, it is out of this that now maybe we can read the words of Numbers chapter 6, the one that you love, Numbers 6, 24. Out of this knowledge, I want to say, now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace because he is the source of the blessings. He's the one who sustains you. He's the one who keeps you. And he's the one who protects and shields his blessings, brothers and sisters. And this God, may he give you peace in all the areas of your life. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you.